Welcome to Canada's least listened to sports broadcast. This is the SBN Sports Roundtable. Your opponents for today's battle, fighting out of the red corner, from Pink Village, Ontario, Canada, it's the one, the only, the infamous, Dwayne Rollins! His opponent, the Lavelle Comet, Kevin Laramie! Special guest referee for today, Kevin Jesus of Global Edmonton. And welcome to the SPN Roundtable for week three. I'm Dwayne Rollins with Kevin Laramie. Joining us today, a producer for Global TV in Edmonton, Kevin Jesus. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you guys doing? Good. Glad to get the West Coast. The, the West is in now, so uh, we, we, wanted to, we wanted to get a West Coast person out there to talk a bit about uh, the issues that affect that part of the country. And uh, I think that where you are in Edmonton, there is no greater issue, no greater uh, topic of conversation over the past probably 35 years than the Edmonton Oilers, who are a very intriguing hockey team. A team that uh, is... Can you tank when you're not trying, Kevin? <laughs> Well, I wouldn't say they're not trying, but yeah, it's been uh, an interesting few seasons here uh, in Edmonton. A lot of frustration, but uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel, guys. All right, I'll, I'll take you that. And for just for the sake of our uh, sake of uh, not confusing people today, when I'm referring to uh, my friend in Montreal, I'm going to call him Laramay. Uh, so Kevin and Laramay are who we're talking to. Uh, Laramay, how are you today? I am doing great. <laughs> That, that's good, Kevin. Um, all right. Uh, let's go back to back out west and, and talk about that hope at the end of the tunnel, uh, Kevin. Um, obviously, the draft pick of, of Connor McDavid this year, or as I am now calling him, uh, Color McBroken, is um, that light. That's a massive light. And, you know, talk about what effect him coming into the market has meant to hope in that part of the, of the country. Well, you just said it right there hope like it finally gave Oilers fans something to be happy about something to be proud about look it's no secret the Oilers have been in a, in a unique situation with all these you know top draft picks and you know we've seen the Taylor Hall and Jordan Everly riding Nugent Hopkins Nail Yakupov you know the list goes on and on and you know we've been sold a, a bill of goods if you will that you know the future is here and this is gonna be one of the most exciting hockey teams ever but it was just one thing after another, you didn't see this team improving. I mean, they were essentially spinning their wheels. And, you know, after this little coaching carousel that the Oilers have gone on in the last few years, um, it looked hopeless. And then when Bill Daly pulled out that golden envelope and it showed that Oilers logo, it was like, yes, change is here. Finally, things are going to change in Edmonton. And um, you're starting to see that because here's here's the thing. I mean, the Oilers have certainly struggled to see. And anyone that says the Oilers were going to make the playoffs this year with Connor McDavid, 
Um, they were sorely mistaken. I mean, this is still a team that needs a lot of work to be done. However, with that being said, it's now December 11th, and the Oilers are in a playoff hunt, which is something we haven't been able to say in like five years. So it's exciting times here. You're seeing the team start to grow. You're seeing the team stay in games, um, which is something that we haven't been able to say for a while as well. Um, so it's good. It's, it's, it's good to be an Oilers fan right now. Fair enough. Lara May, I'll bring you in the conversation now. Uh, you guys have something in common when you talk about McDavid and when he comes back. Certainly that will be the you know, the driver of that bus there. Uh, Kevin, as uh, Lara May, as a fan of the Habs, uh, you have you also have a clear driver of the bus in, in Carey Price, who's also hurt. So just is that speak to this uh, in the modern NHL when, when you don't can't have the same amount of depth you did in the past, the sort of that it becomes dangerous to over rely on, on one superstar, Laramie? It, it does, Dwayne, and it does because uh, this season, Thomas Plakats and a couple of other players from the Montreal Canadiens have been really quick to say that, yeah, Carey Price is the best in the world, but we're pretty good too. Let us, we'll, we'll make a difference, we'll be good. When uh, Carey Price got injured the first time, Condon was so good and took over, had the best stats in the league that you did not necessarily miss Carey Price. Now, for a game losing streak in a row for the Habs, they're actually finding himself in a quite uh, bad moment, and the goalkeeper situation is becoming a trouble, so it's the long run. In the beginning, Connor McDavid got injured. The thing is different there is that he did not, he did not have a chance to get involved 100% with that team. It wasn't like six months and he was the best player for the Oilers. Yeah, it was one. But then he got injured bad timing and hopefully he continues that momentum that he had. It was the best player for the Oilers after that one month. So I'm wondering if because of the fact that he wasn't like the centerpiece of the Oilers before his injury maybe helps the Oilers continue on because of all the other players of Taylor Hall, Nugent Hopkins, Eberle, all those guys are able to carried this team forward because McDavid wasn't established yet. I think that's the biggest difference between the two situations right now. All right. Um, Laramie, uh, let me just ask you this as an outsider, and then I'll go back to Kevin out west. Um, how excited were you to watch Connor McDavid come into the league? I'll tell you, like, for personally, I actually, last year, uh, when he was playing in the OHL, like, I'm in Toronto, and there's no OHL team that easy to get to from where I am. But I made a point of driving out to Peterborough to make sure that I watched this kid play in person. I watched him in the juniors as well uh, in live here in Toronto. But uh, how excited were you to have another, you know, generational player come into the league, Laramie? Uh, Connor McDavid has been compared, I don't know, every single year with Sidney Crosby. But I think the situation where the Oilers and Pittsburgh, when Crosby came into the league with Pittsburgh, is similar and different at the same time. Yes, he's hope, he's like the savior, but in the way they have more pieces in that team already there than Pittsburgh had. So I wouldn't be surprised if it takes only one, if not one and a half years, to see the Oilers achieve a vision that uh, McLennan and the uh, general manager, Shirley, do have. Yeah, Kevin... Uh uh, West, how in the brief time that you saw him play, what were your your thoughts? Is he as good as advertised in your opinion? Oh man, it's exciting to watch him play. Like he's fast and he sees the game so much differently. He's, he you know he's he has that knack of being where the puck is going to be just before it gets there. You know, and he you know he has a great vision for the game. Something we haven't seen in so long. It's it. It's fantastic, you know, and it was really disappointing when he went down with his injury. But at the same time, it's almost a blessing in a weird way because it's kind of throwing the rest of the team, you know, giving them that message that, hey, we still have to do this. We can't just rely on Connor McDavid. And they've stepped up, and they've stepped up in a big way. 
And uh, that's, to me, probably the most encouraging sign. And, you know, to go with what Laramie was saying, that the Oilers, you know, may be a year, year and a half away from, you know, actually being playoff contenders. Absolutely, you're starting to see that now because they're not just relying on one guy. Everyone's starting to pull their weight and come together. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you, Kevin, the the one player that uh, besides McDavid that really impressed me last year watching him in the juniors was was Nurse. And I think that that's always been the the issue with the Oilers. They had a lot of top end uh, forward talent up there, uh, but they just couldn't quite get the back end figured out. So if, if Darnell Nurse can come together, that might be a key component to making this team not just a playoff contender, but a championship contender down the line. Am I, am I off base on that? No, absolutely. You're 100% right. I mean, Darnell Nurse has been a pleasant surprise. I mean, he's probably been the best decision that one of the only best decisions that Craig McTavish has made in his short tenure as a general manager was drafting Darnell Nurse. Uh, he's been invaluable, and he's definitely the future of this team in that blue line. And that's, I guess, where you know we talk about frustration with the Oilers, and that's exactly what's been in the last few years, is goaltending and defense have been our sore spots, specifically goaltending. So to see Anders Nielsen step up, and, and you know he is just lights out lately, um, it's good to see. And again, you, we talked about hope. That's what's giving hope for the Oilers. That's what's giving them confidence that, you know, they can rely on their goaltender a bit now. And if we can get some a couple more pieces on the blue line, uh, the Oilers will be in good shape. Yeah, Kevin, uh, I have a question for you, Kevin. If you're looking at the Oilers, uh, now there's been a change of regime. We have McLennan and Shirelli now. How damaging was the Low and McTavish regime? Two legends of the team that actually destroyed this team for almost a decade. You know, it's funny because everyone looks at it as, uh, you know, damaging, like you said. Look, there was an old boys, menta- boys club mentality here with the Oilers for many years. That's been said uh, a long time. Craig McTavish has a general manager. Certainly there was a lot of questionable decisions. I mean, you look at it with Nikita Nikitin, Mark Fain, um, the Andrew Ference contract. I mean, Ference has been invaluable for the Oilers organization as an ambassador, without a doubt, but uh, on the ice... You know, it's it's been a, a bit tough. And I mean, he has a big contract to be sitting in uh, uh, in the press box, so that that's been tough. Uh, in terms of with Kevin Lowe, I mean, look, we have to remember here, Kevin Lowe was also part of the architect that helped take the Oilers to within one game of winning the Stanley Cup in two thousand and six. And yeah, things went off the rails, and and it was difficult. Um, but again, there was a lot of pieces uh, in play, and there was a lot of frustrations and so forth so yeah the Oilers certainly struggled with uh, in the later years of the low McTavish era but uh they're back on track now with Shirelli and McClellan and we got to see where it goes too because hey everything looks good right now but until they get into the playoffs uh yeah, it's going to be tough sledding. Laramie, I, I have a question for you that I, I as someone, we, you know, everyone who's listened to us for a while knows that our age difference about what it is. It's not massive, but it's enough that it makes a bit of a difference in terms of perspective at times. Um, do you view the Oilers as a heritage franchise? Because I do, because I grew up in I the height. Uh, you don't, yeah. It's a 12, 12 years that makes a big difference. No, I don't. It's because I just missed Gretzky and Messier by a couple of years. I was born in 84. So by the time I'm cognizant and aware of hockey, it's 89 and 90. One of my first souvenirs of hockey, sorry, Kevin, it's uh, Lenny McDonald with the Stanley Cup. So it's 89, mm-hmm. just a little bit after. Wrong side of the, that Alberta. But uh, 
I, I don't view the Oilers as a franchise or as a historic franchise, same as the Islanders. I'm, I view them in the same situation where their glories of the past just a little bit before my time. Uh, for me, it seems like uh, uh, 93 is where I really gravitated towards hockey. No wonder why. But between 89 and 90 is my first souvenirs, and now, unfortunately, the Oilers are not part of it. Yeah, well, and from my perspective, as I said, I mean, that's the team that I grew up hating. I did. I didn't like the Oilers back then because I, I wasn't a fan of them, so I wanted them to lose. And now, I remember, though, as I got older, particularly as it related to Gretzky, and when I'm not talking about older now, I'm talking about, like, even older into my early 20s, I started to more and more appreciate what I was seeing back then. Um, Kevin uh, West, is there almost a... Um, uh, is there something? Is that almost hurting the others now? How great they were once? Uh, you know, it depends on who you talk to, right? Because I mean, there's different generations of fans within the Oilers. You have the ones that were there during the Boys on the Bus era back in the '80s. You have the ones like myself, who, to me, like when I think of the Oilers, I think of the Doug Wade era. You know, I think of the the struggles in the the early to mid-90s when the Oilers were almost sold and moved to Houston and then the whole Save Our Oilers and then Todd Marchant's, you know, epic Game 7 overtime winner against the Dallas Stars. And, you know, so that's kind of what I think of. So I certainly, when I think of the Oilers, I think of a lot of struggle, right? And my first memories of the Oilers, I mean, I, I think I was in kindergarten when they won their when they won their uh, fifth Stanley Cup. Um, so uh, my first memories, like legit memory, was uh, you know again those those uh, struggling years and and that '97 uh, playoff run and of course all those playoff series against the Dallas Stars, and then you have this new generation where uh, again all they've seen with the Oilers is they had that Cup run in '06 and then it's been years of futility. So uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely unique to get different people's perspectives on it. Um, and I think that's what makes this so special here with the Oilers because you do have the people that cling on to the past. You have the generation that never experienced it, but they hear the stories, they see the videos, they see the legends coming back like Glenn Sather and Gretzky and all of them coming back tonight. Um, so it's just it's just a weird dynamic because like no one's on the same page with it. Like you almost kind of wish well, you don't wish it, but you almost kind of look at how Boston Red Sox and Chicago Cubs fans had one thing to rally around: perennial losers. So right now, as an Oilers fan, though. Uh, the last 10 years have been struggles, but now you can at least see uh, some hope in the end. Yeah, you know my almost the, the analogy I would draw them from a Canadian perspective is the Blue Jays and Blue Jays fans. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, certainly I, I'm the one that can bridge those generation gaps and live through <laughs> all the middle runs. It's like, yeah, they're the teams that are very similar and uh, seem to be on the ascendancy, hopefully, for both. Um Let's uh, before I get into some CFL stuff because the, this Chris Jones situation. For those that don't know, we'll explain it a little bit in a minute. It, it is a fascinating sort of situation that sort of uh, speaks to uh, the the weird little power dynamic out there in the West. But I, I did want to talk about the rivalry with the Flames, and I'm going to tell you a bit of an antidote first before I go in there. I was in Alberta. I lived out there uh, during the time that uh, that they went to the last Stanley Cup, and I was in Calgary actually, and I saw the most amazing thing that has always made me question how intense the Oilers-Flames rivalry was. I was sitting in Calgary, and there were Calgarians that were cheering for the Oilers in the Stanley Cup final as some kind of Alberta pride thing. Um, talk about the state of the rivalry, Kevin. Is it, was that just a, an anomaly that I saw that day? 
No, it, it, it's it's weird because there were a lot of Oilers fans that were cheering for the Calgary Flames in 04 when they were in the Stanley Cup final. So it, it was really bizarre. I don't, and there's a lot of fans that just could never cheer for either team. Um, yeah, it, it's weird. You know, again, in my generation, you know, so the mid to the early to mid 90s, the Battle of Alberta just wasn't intense because both teams were really bad. And so you kind of we I missed when the Battle of Alberta was really intense back in the 80s and when that was really brought up. Um, is it getting better now? Yeah, you're starting to see the intensity pick up a little bit um, in terms of the fan base. You know, I can tell you, uh, my friends and I, we get a bus every year and we head down to one game um, Battle of Alberta game in Calgary. And it's just it's always fun uh, just kind of beaking with the fans and so forth. Always respectful. Um, but so that's kind of fun. Uh, but intensity wise, it's only starting to get there now. Um, you know, when I think of the Oilers rivals, uh, to me, the Dallas Stars was the Oilers biggest rival uh, when I was growing up. Right. right. So it's been definitely a, a, a change, uh, a shift. But uh, no, it's starting to get better now, especially with all these young guys. Uh, maybe a little bit of jealousy on the Flames part that you know, we have all these young stars, especially like McDavid. Now, but with that said, credit to the Calgary Flames. Uh, Brian Burke has put together a really solid team down there. Um, so we should see some pretty interesting matchups in the years to come. The, that rivalry, uh, Laramie, sounds a little bit like the Blue Jays Expos ones that we talked about uh, the other day. Eh? Yeah, exactly. Where there's not necessarily a rivalry, but it is sometimes, yeah, no. But uh, you're right. I remember I never really felt a Edmonton a Calgary rivalry. And that's something that's surprising because they big teams in a close region, the closest to each other, and you would think there would be always a rivalry on and off the pitch, and I think the rivalry is really between the fans more than anything else. Off they, the pitch. A, off the pitch, exactly. Off the ice. <laughs> Too much soccer talk. We have a soccer show coming up in an hour. Perfect. All right. Uh, let's move to um, to this uh, CFL stuff. And, uh, Kevin, I'll get you to just sort of lay the land on exactly what happened and then just have you follow up from that immediately and to just tell me what the reaction in Edmonton uh, to Chris Jones moving to a, to a rival so closely after a championship has been. Well, uh, the rumors started a week before the Grey Cup that Chris Jones uh, may be targeted by the Saskatchewan Rough Riders to be their new head coach and general manager. It really started to pick up steam during Grey Cup week, and then it was as if the second Mike Riley lifted the Grey Cup in Winnipeg, it was almost as if, well, that's it. That's the last time we saw Chris Jones. And it's like, what? And within a matter of days, Chris Jones is off to Saskatchewan in uh on the Friday for his interview, and on Monday morning, he was sitting down uh, at a news conference in uh, at Mosaic Stadium and introduces a new GM and head coach. Uh, some people were caught off guard. I think a lot of people were caught off guard in the grand scheme of things. Um, but you know what? Ed Hervey has, uh, for those of you who don't know, Ed Hervey's the general manager of the Edmonton Eskimos. He's handled this with, with class and I think with the right mentality because, let's face it, in all sport and I guess in all business, you want you want your employees to better themselves and you want them to, to grow and, and to, to have ambition. And when you look at it, Chris Jones, if he was just going to be just the head coach in Saskatchewan, there would be a lot bigger problem here. And I don't even think that Ed Hervey would have even granted permission. However, Chris Jones has the ambition and desire to be in a management-type position. And in Edmonton, that just wasn't going to happen because Ed Hervey isn't going anywhere. So... 
Ed Hervey gave him permission. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about should there be compensation or so forth. Ed Hervey says, no, he's not looking for compensation. As far as he's concerned, Chris Jones fulfilled his obligations in Edmonton by bringing a great cup. And that's exactly what he did. Within two years, he brought them a great cup. So um, for those that kind of remove themselves from the situation, yeah, everything, it's it's a little unfortunate and puts the Eskimos in a bit of a tough bind. Uh, but at the same time, it makes sense from a professional standpoint. But there are a lot of fans that are, are hurt by it. Um, they call him a traitor. Uh, in fact, uh, when I curl on Tuesday nights and I wear a rider's jersey when I curl and a lot of people were just like, you're a traitor. And I'm like, what, what, you know, like, come on, let's calm down here. Uh, you know, we talked about the Battle of Alberta rivalry. You know, the Eskimos riders rivalry is alive and well here uh, in Edmonton. So um, to see that happen, it's, it's certainly going to make it very interesting when Chris Jones returns to the sidelines wearing the green and white as opposed to the green and gold. Um Laramie, I'll get you to jump in if you want. Uh, I know CFL is not really completely in our wheelhouse here in Central Canada, which which leads me to my next question to Kevin. Just uh, talk about where the Eskimos winning fit within the Edmonton landscape, how big it was out there, uh, how it relates to, to maybe Oilers coverage. Uh, just give us a bit of lay of the land for those of us who don't necessarily live in the hotbed of, of the CFL. You know, uh when the Eskimos won the Great Cup, obviously it's a big deal. Fans are pretty happy, and it was top story on every media outlet out here. Obviously, they had uh, thousands of fans go to their Sir Winston Churchill Square in front of City Hall to uh, rally a few days later and celebrate with the Great Cup. Um, you know, the Eskimos are certainly uh, their community-owned team, so I mean they've been non-stop going around the community showing off that great cup so it's been fantastic however i worked at global saskatoon um right around the time when the uh riders won their uh the great cup in 2007 ending a very long drought and what a difference like in saskatchewan i mean riderville it's like the riders are a religion down there that's all they've got and it was a huge dynamic shift you know everyone just went nuts the riders are everything whereas here Edmonton's an Oilers town first, then it's an Eskimos town, and then it's everything else. Um, so, again, the prime example was yesterday. The Oilers are going to be honoring Glenn Sather uh, tonight, uh, raising his name to uh, a banner with his name on it to the rafters here at Rexall Place. Yesterday was uh, the city celebration for him. Well, in the morning, the Eskimos had scheduled the Ed Hervey news conference at the exact same time. And it's kind of like, are you guys kidding me? Like, no one's going to cover you guys. Everyone's going to be at the Oilers. So the Eskimos actually ended up shifting their news conference by two hours. So, I mean... Here in Edmonton, the Oilers are number one by a long shot, and then it's the Eskimos. And I guess you you want to talk about the difference, just take a look out on the streets. And I'll always compare it to the Riders only because, you know, I've lived in Saskatchewan. In Saskatchewan on game day and even any other day, people are walking around in Rider gear. Uh, here in Edmonton, you just don't really see a lot of people wearing Eskimos gear. So that's something that... Um, the team needs to work on, and quite frankly, it's something the CFL needs to work on. They unveiled their new logo, their new, their new uh, MO, their uh, hashtag WWMO, what we're made of. Well, the CFL has a, an identity crisis, and they need to really work on attracting a younger generation uh, before you lose that generation for good. Yeah, Kevin and I have talked about it in a past show, and uh, actually, I'm gonna, I'll ask Kevin a quick question after this. Larry, I'm talking about, of course, uh, where we talked about. 
you know, how the CFL sort of hangs its hat on these TV numbers for years and years and years. And we're not entirely convinced that they're representative of uh, of uh, the youth demographic, demographic in the past. And certainly when we look in Montreal and Toronto and we see uh, MLS overtaking the CFL in terms of young people's interest. And uh, I, I know FC Edmonton's nowhere near that up there, uh, Kevin. But at the same time, uh, that that sort of change in demographic is something that absolutely has to has to be addressed for sure. Uh, Lara May. Uh, before I started talking about Chris Jones in the lead up to the show yesterday, did you know who he was? Absolutely. I had a chance to see him coach up close in Montreal. He started to be defensive line coach in 2002. That's when I retired as a player. That's when I was a defensive line and defensive line. I've been to a uh, summer camp with them, watch was able to watch him coach personally. I was able to see him his tactics, his organization, and that was early in his career. He started in 95-96 with Tennessee Tech. Uh, he moved on almost every year until 2001 to always a notch higher. So I just wanted to lay the groundwork. So Chris Jones, how the move might be surprising from Edmonton to Saskatchewan to a better, bigger job and responsibility where he has been doing this his entire career. And as a football coach, it's a very uh, often seen blueprint that a coach will always move on from notch to notch. He started as a graduate assistant, defensive line coach, defensive line recruiter, coordinator, then moved to the Alouettes with Don Matthews. It was one of the reasons he wanted to come to Montreal was to learn from Don Matthews. He had coaching clinic stint with Bill Belichick. The three coaches that he believe are his mentors in his career are Bill Belichick, Don Matthews, and uh, Bill Parcells, those three influenced the way he's coaching. And then he went on to become the defensive coordinator for Montreal Alouettes. He won the Great Cup in 2002 with the Alouettes. From 03-07 defensive coordinator, then he moved to Calgary as a defensive coordinator, still assistant head coach, then assistant director of player personnel to finally have a defensive uh, coordinator, assistant head coach with Toronto. Eventually, assistant general manager too with Toronto, which gave him the taste of what it is to be a general manager. Comes to Edmonton, two season, wins the Grey Cup, and now Saskatchewan Rough Riders as a double head coach and general manager. So if you're looking at his resume, that move is not necessarily surprising. You know what I like about that story is, that, and, and I'm coming at a soccer perspective here, so everyone who knows who listens to this probably knows that we're soccer guys a lot. And uh, Kevin uh, out there at West, I know you like the soccer as well, the soccer. You do. <laughs> you do. Um, what I like about that story of Chris Jones is this is a guy that is, has forged a career in coaching in Canada, uh, focusing on the Canadian game. And that's something that, that the domestic game for soccer is really lacking here is that the coaches have to leave. They, they, have, they struggle to find opportunity, and it, it's great. And I've always respected that about the, the Canadian football crowd is that they, that they support their own. And that's something that I think we should learn from in a lot of sports is that we should, should support our own a little bit more. Um, Kevin, before we move and take a quick break, I did want to, I mentioned FC Edmonton. I'm going to ask you real quickly, uh, where does they, do they rank right now? Do they have much visibility at all? Uh, I mean this with no disrespect, but FC Edmonton who? And I think that's the, I say that because I think that's what a lot of people end up saying here around Edmonton. They don't, they don't factor that big here in, in the community. Now, you do see their logo out in the community a bit. They go and try and do as many events as they possibly can. And credit to the ownership group there. They've done a lot of work. They put in new stands there at Clark Park to really try and give it a soccer-type atmosphere. There's certainly a, a small group of dedicated, hardcore fans. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, they don't factor anywhere. Like I said, this is an Oilers town. Yeah, well, U of, U of A team, would they factor around the same level U of A club teams would, would factor in? 
Yeah, you know what? I would say maybe a little bit more than the U of A teams, but uh, yeah, it's kind of all around in that same same factor. This is an Oilers town first, Eskimos town second, and then the rest are all kind of lumped in together. Oil Kings, FC Edmonton, I'd put them on an evil, even playing field. In fact, I'd probably say the Oil Kings get a little bit more uh, coverage, certainly because it's a longer season and it's hockey. I mean, that's what people love. And I think it, it's... it's uh, it's uh, an inferiority complex in the sense that I think things would be different if FC Edmonton was an MLS club as opposed to an NALS club. Uh, it's a big uh, NASL club, rather. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big difference, you know? All right, fair enough. Let's take a quick break. We're going to come back. And we're going to talk a little bit about the cultural difference between how sports are consumed and watched in, in Western Canada versus here in Central Canada. And I may even add my little two cents about my time out in the Maritimes and what I saw out there right after this quick break. All the money in the cash register, Mr. Duncan is going to donate to the Children's Hospital. At midnight tonight, we're hitting Duncan's toy chest. We can mess with a lot of things. Can't mess with kids on Christmas. And welcome back to the SPN Roundtable. I'm Dwayne Rollins with Kevin Laramay. And Kevin Jesus out in Edmonton. Kevin in Edmonton. Um, let's talk a bit about the difference between the culture of the East and the, uh, the West in terms of, of sports watching. Um, you, you mentioned uh, in the last segment that you curl, and you curl wearing a uh, Saskatchewan Rough Riders jersey. I am trying to imagine um, someone around your age curling in a Toronto Argonauts jersey, and I just can't <laughs> do it. Um, from your perspective, what biggest difference do you see from a media perspective on how uh, the sporting landscape is covered in the West versus what you see from uh, the Toronto Sports Network here in Toronto? You know, when I look at sports and how it's kind of covered the, down there in Toronto, number one, a lot of it is obviously the Maple Leafs are, are everything. So NHL is huge and it's all about the big sport. Here in, in Edmonton and in Saskatchewan, and so I want to preface this by saying again, I worked at Global Saskatoon for a number of years, and then now I'm here at Global Edmonton. So I've kind of seen it from two different prairie provinces. Um, the emphasis is definitely on local sports. We do a lot of amateur sports, uh, so we try and keep people uh, interested in that way. Uh, you talk about curling. Curling's huge out here. People love the sport of curling. And I mean, the television ratings reflect that as well. Curling does quite well for both TSN and for sports and whenever they show it as well. So, um, yeah, it's just, people just love everything there. The CFL is, is, is in their blood here as well, even though NHL is a lot higher. Um, they're willing to support a lot of stuff. Whereas, you know, you take a look at out East, it just always seemed like the Argonauts were never given a chance because it's always, well, it's not the NFL. Similar to how in the last segment I said with FC Edmonton, well, it's not MLS, right? So there are some similarities in that aspect. But, uh, again, the entire country from coast to coast to coast, it's hockey is first and then it's the rest. Kevin, uh, Lermay. Uh, do you like? I'm talking about Central Canada. I'm lumping this in together. Am I wrong to do that? Do you see differences between here and uh, like here, Ontario, and and where you are in Montreal and Quebec? I actually do. I actually see a certain more openness in the GTA area, at least the market I know more than maybe the rest of Ontario. So in Southern Ontario, there's a more openness to many different sports than I would probably 
uh, explain this aspect with the fact that there's an NBA team, an NFL team an hour away. There's a lot of other sport that Montreal or Quebec doesn't have in the pro sports arena that they don't have. So, of course, the Habs are going to be first. The Impact made a huge headway this year, but still, they, it's a roller coaster with the Impact. They have a great coverage when it's a big moment, but sometimes in the dog days of summer, there's a lack. So, it it's always a roller coaster, but with the Habs, it's a constant plastered everywhere. And I think it's not necessarily uh, about the de- it's not about the demographic anymore because people that want other content, they've been conditioned for 20, 30 years that they're not going to get it there, so they go they get it anywhere else. That's why we're doing this show right now. the The presence of online other content, other TV cable with the multiplication of digital channels, all those reasons explain why. You're not getting that mainstream content where you get your hockey content, but you do get it somewhere else. Fair enough. Uh, Kevin, uh, quickly, uh, you mentioned like curling's massive appeal. Like just I'm curious if someone like Caitlin Laws or Rachel Holman were to walk down the street in Edmonton, would people like stop them for autographs? No, I know. I don't I don't know if they would. Uh, I certainly if Kevin Martin or Randy Furby are walking by, they would. Okay. Uh, You know, Jennifer Jones, quite possibly. Um, but a lot of the newer generation, I think it's going to take time for people to uh, to warm up to them and to kind of get that name face recognition. Uh, but certainly people are quite knowledgeable about the curling scene out here. Okay, fair enough. Um, let me ask you, Kevin, about the uh, the Blue Jays and the Raptors in particular and how they are perceived in the West. Uh, you know, they like to market themselves as Canada's team, uh, which I think right, like makes some people a little bit angry that don't you know that don't like Toronto for both positive and negative reasons. Um, Are they well-liked? Is there a divide? Are they just universally hated and everyone thinks it's ridiculous that they're being marketed that way? Uh, Talk about that a bit. Okay, well, I'll start with the Toronto Raptors. Uh, Before they went on this, you know, the last couple of years where they, okay, how about we do this? In the pre-Drake era of the Toronto Raptors, the Toronto Raptors didn't factor at all anywhere out here, uh, but then things changed. They, you know, it's a, again an identity change uh, for them, and suddenly they started being competitive, and they started, you know, being winning games, and then you start seeing people pay more attention. And I'll speak for myself. Last year's uh, playoff run was probably the first time that I'd watched a full NBA game, uh, beginning to end, in gosh knows how many years. Um, so, yeah, there was certainly excitement there. Same thing with the Toronto Blue Jays. You always have a small group of Toronto Blue Jays fans out here. But, man, this playoff run, I've never seen so many Blue Jays jerseys, hats, you name it, in my entire life out here. So you know, you got to be a winner. Until you're a winner, no one cares about you out here. It's that simple. So they're fine, too. They like to bash the Leafs because that's kind of funny, although there's a lot of Leafs fans <laughs> in the prairies. Um, uh, yeah. But uh, but certainly, yeah. The Leafs fans, you do see a lot of Leafs fans out there, and some of them are expats that have moved out to work, but uh, a lot of them are older that they grew up watching them when they were the only options there. Are, are they dying off amongst the young? I would assume that they're dying off amongst younger people. You don't see a lot of young prairies bred and you know, raised uh, people cheering for the Leafs now, do you? No, it's, it's, you still – it's the, the older people that are certainly a lot of the, the Leafs fans. Now, I'll say Leafs fans, Habs fans, Bruins fans. I was at the Bruins-Oilers game last week and, man, when the Bruins would score – like you'd almost think it was a home game, like the amount of Bruins fans there were, and that just kind of caught me off guard. So there's still definitely a lot of the original six fans because let's face it, the kids grow up and they see that their mom and dad are 
are, you know, Bruins fans or Leafs fans or Habs fans, and they just kind of follow along as well. But, you know, there's uh, they're also carving out their own uh, fan base here with the Oilers. Fair enough. Uh, Kevin, I want to go back to Laramie. I want to go back to you a little bit on these differences in that. I mean, we talked about Curly in a, a, a while there, and uh, Quebec sort of stands out in a, in a unique way that it doesn't seem to have any influence at all in the game. There's, like, there's a few t- ranks, right? But, like, where does it any factor at all? Does anyone in Montreal care about curling? It's the niche of niche sport in Quebec. There is the Montreal Curling Club that's been uh, here for over a uh, hundred years, so over... Uh, it's, it's more than centennial. You have a lot of great clubs throughout Quebec that are islands in, the, in themselves. That, yes, nobody might care, but there's a lot of good and interesting players in those clubs that do perform well on the national scene. We had uh, La Roche on the women's side from uh, it's been the last decade. She's been great. Guillemings before that on the men's side. There's been legends of the sport from Quebec, but it is on a lower profile aspect. It is from their own club. It's a very niche, private type of sport that doesn't get mainstream coverage, doesn't get coverage at all here in Quebec. But it's still there. There's a, a lot of, usually it's a hand-down type of sport. That uh, Same thing as your favorite team. When your father and mother are playing curling and involving you from a young age, you have a better chance of growing in that club and becoming a player yourself. We saw that with the Emmings and the Laroche. So I think that explains those pockets of curling fans. There's some places, uh, Trois-Rivières, a little northern uh, as well. There's some cities where curling is really big, but it's a very local niche type of sport still. If I could just jump in really quick, I, I just got to say, like, uh, you're 100% there in terms of it's it's being passed down. But I think the other issue that people need to to remember here, we talked about it with the CFL, we're talking about it a lot here, is is the identity crisis. And, and they really need to, you got to make it cool again. You know, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, they would have their telethons all the time to try and raise money. I mean, this was a franchise that was on the verge of collapse, and now they're one of the most powerful franchises in the CFL. Why? Because Roy Shivers, when he took over the Saskatchewan Rough Riders back in the late 90s, early 2000s, he changed the identity of that franchise. He made it cool to be a Ryder fan, with the Watermelons, Ryder Nation, all that stuff. Now everyone wants to be part of that cool club. You know, you see it with curling. My parents didn't weren't into curling. You know, they're, they're Portuguese. You know, it's all about soccer. You know, whereas... For me, what got me into curling, quite frankly, was number one, covering it as a sports reporter in Saskatoon. But number two, in Saskatoon, they had a curling club that they had glow-in-the-dark curling, which is crazy sounding. But you know what? It was a lot of fun, and it brought in people who have never experienced the sport to try it. So that's the thing. you got to make this stuff cool. you got to really a- attract the younger generation, and then you'll get fans and-, and people that will participate in the sports as well. You know, absolutely. I think curling suffers a little bit in the same way hockey does in terms of uh, barrier to access. It's a great game to play when you play it, but it's pretty expensive to try it out. And I think a lot of clubs here in Ontario anyway are, are trying to address that with free clinics and, and trying to get into the schools with the, the, what are the Little Rocks program or whatever it's called. Um, Kevin, I want to talk about two more sports to end the show uh, specifically that I think have – interesting sort of dynamics not just in a western canada eastern canada perspective but sort of like in how they're perceived between urban and rural i'm going to start with one that um i worked in saskatchewan as well as you uh, in the early 2000s uh i don't know if you were working in the early 2000s but <laughs> i worked in saskatchewan as well and one of the sports that i covered a lot when i was out there that i had absolutely no exposure to prior to going and have absolutely no exposure to since i left is professional rodeo um is <laughs> 
tell me where that is right now. And is it an urban rural divide out there? Because I kind of got a bit of that vibe when I was there, but certainly the, the stampede in Calgary and blah, blah, blah. But just tell me about the state of pro rest or pro rodeo and, and sort of where it fits in the cultural sporting scene out there. You know, uh, I had never gone to a rodeo or a chuck wagon race until I got into broadcasting. Let me tell you. And that was an eye opener. Um, Growing up in Edmonton, all we have out here is the Canadian Finals Rodeo once a, once a year, which is a huge event, always sells out. Um, but I really think a lot of that is people go there for the party, not necessarily to see the rodeo. I really do think there is a, a, an urban-rural divide. Um, a lot of my, you know, a lot of my longtime friends here in Edmonton, they'll never go to a rodeo. Uh, but when you're in Saskatchewan or small-town Alberta, that's what you live for is the rodeo and chuck wagon racing. Yeah, well, it's the biggest, it's the party of the year. You're right. I mean, uh, the small town that I worked in, Maple Creek, Saskatchewan, if you know Saskatchewan, you might know where that is. Um, Yeah, they had a pro rodeo stop, and that was was their season of the year. Is there any rodeo in Quebec, Laramie? (laughs) Yeah, there's the equivalent of the Calgary Stampede, which is one of the biggest festivals in the entire province, the Western Festival of St. Sid, where every beginning of September... The population of that city goes from 40,000 to about 340,000. And uh, basically people camp on everybody else's lawn. And there's huge rodeos, chuck wagon, everything that you can think of. So it's huge, just like the Stampede. Maybe not as, as a big of a scale, but still it's uh, very popular in the East Coast region. Uh, everywhere in the Western culture, the country culture, a lot of people gathered to this festival that includes rodeo, pro-rodeo stops, and uh, all those... Uh, uh, cultural stands, and it's almost like a fair at the same time. Fair enough, yeah. Just an interesting dynamic there. I want to end the show with a sport that's in all of our wheelhouses, and that's that's soccer. And I'm going to start with Kevin out west, and well, I'm going to probably just lead with Kevin out west. Where, hmm. where, where is the sport out there now? Like, is it still, you know, the communist sport among some people's minds, or or the <laughs> other, or whatever? Like, the, I remember, I'll tell you a quick antidote. I was in Calgary for the start of the the Germany World Cup. And I I just assumed, because I'm a Toronto guy, that it would be everywhere, that I could go to any bar, get it turned on and watch it, and it would be packed and people would be out there to enjoy. So I started calling bars the night before just to make sure, because it started pretty early the first game. And they they were like, the what? what? What am I turning on? And I ended up finally getting one waitress that said, oh, the soccer. And then hold on, what's, and she put the phone down to her, to her side and yelled out, what's that bar that the English guys go to? And then they told me the name of this bar in Calgary, which just slips my mind. It's still there. I know. It's a famous soccer bar. And I went there, of course, and it was packed and they had an early license and all that sort of stuff. But the the TV crews were in there filming us like we were zoo animals, which I hadn't seen in Toronto in years before. Here are the soccer guys watching their <laughs> quadrangle, you know. Anyway, so where is soccer now, Kevin? Is it, is it bigger than what it was a decade or so ago when I was out there? Oh, absolutely it is. Yeah, you can watch games pretty much wherever. I mean – there, there are bars around here, and I mean bars even inside West Edmonton Mall um, that were advertising Champions League final. Come watch the Champions League final. So, I mean, when you're getting down to that level, like, good on you. So, no, it's certainly growing out here. A lot of people, uh, again, a lot of people like to embrace their heritage, and they want to go in and support um, their ethnic backgrounds. Uh, now, if you were to say, call up a bar and say, hey, are you showing the Canadian men's national soccer team? Number one, it would have to be broadcast. But number two, <laughs> if it is... That's mean. Uh, you know, well, <laughs> let's call it spade a spade here. Uh, if it is, you know what? It just it doesn't resonate out here. But with that being said, 
when the women played out here for the uh, Women's World Cup, it was really well received and people were excited and there was a big buzz here in the city. So, yeah, it's definitely growing and people are definitely into it. And maybe I'm a little biased because I'm a huge soccer fan. But, uh, no, I, I certainly see a lot of uh, growth and excitement in it for sure. Here's a little tidbit. The the Voyagers started the Voyagers, the Canadian National Team Sporting Club, actually started from uh, someone from Edmonton started the team. It's not really very Toronto focused now in, in Vancouver, but the, the it has its roots in Edmonton. And I saw, I actually watched Canada play Germany uh, on TV in the West Edmonton Mall at the Boston Pizza. So it, it has been done before. I'll let you know. Um, yeah. I, I think that uh, that's. I just wanted to get that out there and ask that, see where the the state of it is. I do think that the soccer, still even in in this part of the country, has that rural urban divide that a lot of sports do. That a lot of the, you know, the rural Canada. I think, and I don't, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. Is still very much hockey, 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 hockey. Whereas I think urban Canada, which includes Calgary and Edmonton, obviously. Uh, yep. I don't know whether Saskatoon and Regina would be in that that yet, but Saskatoon maybe certainly with the universities there. Uh, they tend to be a little bit more outward-looking uh, than rural Canada. I don't mean that as an insult. It's just an observation. Uh, that sound about right? Yeah, that, you know, that does sound about right. I mean, you know, when I was in uh, – when I worked at a TV station in Lloydminster, I mean, yeah, I was pretty much in the same boat as you. Trying to find a place to watch Euro 2004 was uh, quite difficult. And basically I managed to convince a manager at a at – a, a, original Joe's to essentially put the TVs on for the game for me and my friends to just watch. You know, that was the only place that we could get anyone to turn it on. I suspect things have changed on a little bit more just because, again, you know, with, with TSN or Sportsnet, you know, giving it just a lot more coverage, it's becoming a little bit more mainstream and they'll just kind of have it on. Um, but, yeah, I would definitely say uh, you're more likely to go and find places to watch a game and see a lot more outward support in a larger center than you will in a smaller municipality. Do you watch your port? Do you have a Portuguese team? Uh, club team, yeah. Sporting is my team. Okay, sporting. Uh, they advanced yesterday, so congratulations over the Canadian. Though, come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Laramie. Any final thoughts before I say goodbye to both of you? No, I think everything's been said, and uh, it's just hopefully Connor McDavid will come back because it's a great story out of Edmonton that finally maybe they're able to put all those first round draft pick in line and uh, have a great season. All right, and Kevin, we thank you for joining. We'll we'll touch base down the line uh, when uh, when we want to talk a little more West Coast stuff or sorry Prairie stuff. I don't want to mix you in with those Vancouver guys, eh? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Anytime you guys want to chat, CIS football, soccer, pro wrestling, hockey, whatever you name it, we're good to talk. Yeah, Kev, Kevin and you can Kevin and Kevin can talk about the pro wrestling. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a pass on that one. All right. <laughs> on that note, that's been the ESPN Roundtable for Week Three. I'm Dwayne Rollins. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you in the next time.